So our readings today are both dramatic passages from the book, uh, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, if you want to follow, you can find them on page 276 of the Pew Bible. The words also are appearing on the screen in front of us. However, Simon suggested a few edits to bring uh, a little bit of continuity to this uh, rather confusing narrative. So some of the verses are missed out. But we'll begin with Revelation chapter 17, at the first verse. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly amazed. But the angel said to me, why are you so amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And he said to me, the waters that you saw where the whore is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by agreeing to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So we continue our New Testament reading from the book of Revelation chapter 18 beginning at the first verse. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. He called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice from, from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, and so that you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double draught for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, 
so give her a like measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart, she says, I rule as a queen, I am no widow, and I will never see grief. Therefore, her plagues will come in a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo any more. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves and human lives. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, with such violence, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down and will be found no more. Last weekend, a number of us from Bloomsbury were at Greenbelt Arts Festival. It was my 32nd attendance at the Greenbelt Arts Festival. Uh, surely, Simon, you're not old enough. No, it's true. I have been going there since 1986 and I've only missed two. But there we go. Uh, it was fantastic. And in addition to discovering some new bands, by the way, Brass Against, which is a kind of brass version of Rage Against the Machine, absolutely fantastic. Um, we went to quite a number of really good seminars. And uh, the big discovery in terms of seminar speakers for me this year was uh, a chap called Danny Dawling, who is a social geographer professor from Oxford University. I went and heard a couple of his sessions. I've now ordered his book. I'm waiting for it to arrive. Uh, I had thought geography was one of those subjects that would never interest me. I got a D in it in my GCSE and had kind of put it on the shelf in my mind labelled no. Well, anyway, it turns out it's really interesting when you actually do it properly. And uh, he was talking about Brexit, can you believe? Um, I'm not going to rehearse this seminar. If you want to know more, you can either download it from the website or have a chat with Jeff, who's got the talks on a stick, I think. But um, one of the things he was talking about was the way in which the market is held up as a kind of precision tool for uh, solving all of society's problems. It's, you know, we've evolved economically to a point where the freedom of the market, if it is given enough freedom to keep correcting itself, will be the thing that solves all of our problems. He was critical of that perspective um, and, and gave good reasons why, largely relating to situations facing poverty uh, around the country. So particularly with uh, the threat of a no-deal Brexit before us, what's the impact going to be on the poorest of the poor? And he was looking at different regions around the country and the way in which people will be impacted uh, at, at the lower levels of income um, stream. I was also a signatory to a letter recently. This was written by the Baptists, the Methodists, and the United Reformed Church. And as uh, one of the ministers for one of the uh, more prominent London Baptist churches, I was asked to sign this. And this was a letter to Boris, uh, highlighting our concerns about uh, the poorest of the poor in the event of a no-deal Brexit. 
I want to sort of set aside the macroeconomic ar um, arguments about decoupling ourselves from the Eurozone and, you know, if the Euro falls, we, the long-term uh, possibilities for good that may exist for the country out of uh, Brexit. I hear all of that. My problem is people are going to die before we get anywhere good. And they're going to die because of market economics. And I wonder what heaven's perspective on this is. And uh, in that reading that Duncan just gave us, did you hear the list of all of the benefits of empire? You know, the horses and the spices and the olive oil and, all, and slaves and human lives. And I just wonder if heaven's perspective on economics is that it has the capacity to kill as well as the capacity to enrich, and therefore it needs to be handled carefully. Well, that wasn't the introduction I had written, so I'm sorry, Solomon, that I've thrown you, but let's go to the first slide now. Um, <clears throat> does anybody recognize uh, the three graces here from just down the road, the other end of Shaftesbury Avenue on top of the Criterion building? Uh, I was walking down the bottom end of Shaftesbury Avenue the other day, and it was really busy, and I thought to myself, good grief, it's like Piccadilly Circus around here. <laughs> anyway, this morning I'd like to introduce you to three women and a beast. And the women are not actually the three graces, but they have something similar to them. Are they the three graces? Are they the three daughters of Helios? Anyway, they are women who symbolize... Uh, purity and nobility and beauty and virginity and there's a whole load of stuff tied up in all of that. We'll come back to uh, the beast in a few minutes but let me introduce you to the three women I actually want to talk about this morning who are a bit like the three graces but aren't. Uh, the first one, uh, next slide please Solomon, uh, she is a woman that is symbolic of something. She is Britannia, she is the noble and beautiful warrior queen who symbolized the British Empire in its heyday. So there she is, uh, wearing a helmet, carrying a shield and a trident. So what does it mean to have a woman symbolizing an empire, blending concepts of militarism and economics? She's on our coin, she's got a trident, she's a warrior. There we have the Britannia. Another one, next slide please. The next woman I want to introduce you to is Lady Liberty, another symbolic representation of an empire in female form. Most famously, the Statue of Liberty in America, speaking of the nobility and purity of the American empire, the land of the free, the land of liberty and justice. Well, it's just working out great for both Britannia and Lady Liberty at the moment, isn't it? Anyway, and the third woman is really their great, 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 great grandmother. Uh, she's much older, but just as beautiful, and she dates from Roman times. And this is the goddess Roma. She was also struck on their coins. This is a coin from the first century. So the people who knew the book of Revelation would have maybe even traded with coins identical to that, with Roma on them. But she wasn't just on the coins. They did lots of statues of Roma. And so you could go throughout the Roman Empire, and on street corners you would find a statue of the goddess Roma. This is a photo of the one that still stands in the forum, at the end of the forum in Rome. And she was, for the Romans, what Britannia and Lady Liberty have become for us. A beautiful, pure woman depicted in statue form, offering a kind of stunning personification of the civilization and empire that she represented. Interesting, no, not yet, Dun uh, Solomon, keep that one. Thank you, keep it there for a moment. 
Uh, she was often carved holding an elaborate bowl or patera in her hands, a kind of offering bowl. And the wine that it contained was supposed to symbolise all the richness and the glory of being part of the Roman Empire. And of course, for many of those who lived in the Roman Empire, the experience of Roma and all that she stood for was a very positive one. And so the goddess Roma was worshipped in temples throughout the empire. The citizens of Rome enjoyed the benefits of her existence and drank deeply from the wine cup that she offered out to them in her hand. And it's this image of Rome personified as Roma, which John had in mind when he was writing to the churches of Asia Minor in the letter of Revelation, which we read earlier. He pictures in his mind the, the goddess Roma, pure, virginal, beautiful, lovely symbol of Roman civilization. And next slide, please. The way John sees her, she is a temple prostitute. She is what he calls the whore of Babylon, a spreader of disease, a corrupter of those who climb into her bed. And it turns out, the way John depicts her, she isn't that fussy. She will share her bed with anyone who's interested, certainly anyone who is willing to pay the price. And he paints this image of a kind of process of pleasure and corruption tied to economic transaction. So John paints the whore of Babylon as a woman who is inviting everyone from the kings of the earth to the common people of Rome to participate in her pleasures and buy into her corruption. And by giving his churches in Asia Minor this alternative picture of the goddess Roma, what he's doing is the same thing he's done all the way through the book of Revelation. He's trying to give his readers heaven's perspective on their earthly situation. He's showing them their context as heaven sees it rather than as they would see it. And he's doing this to equip them and prepare them to live as Christians in a world which he understands as being fundamentally anti-Christian. So he takes Roma and reinvents her as the whore of Babylon. You see, the temptation for those living under the thrall of Rome was to buy into its ideology, to believe the propaganda, to unquestioningly accept the benefits, and, you know, not ask too many questions about the costs involved. The temptation for those living in close proximity to Roma was to buy into her seductive luxuries and not question the ethical or moral cost involved. And John turns that temptation on its head with his reworking of the goddess Roma as the great whore. The way John sees her, she is a symbol of the economic structures of the Roman Empire. And instead of being a beneficial and noble economic system, symbolized by a noble and beautiful woman, he instead sees Roman imperial economics as a corrupt and corrupting system best symbolized by a prostitute. John is asking his readers, through using this imagery, to perceive something of Rome's true character. He's showing them the moral corruption 
which lies behind the beautiful and attractive exterior of the empire in which they are so thoroughly enmeshed. And in giving his readers this insight, he's offering them a stark choice. They either buy into Rome's ideology, accepting the view of empire promoted by Roman propaganda, symbolized by the goddess Roma, or they see Rome from the perspective of heaven and understand it for the corrupt and corrupting institution that it is. But in addition to the women, I did promise you a beast. So we come to the image of the scarlet beast with the seven heads, which for John symbolizes the corrupt and violent military and political power of imperial Rome, the city of seven hills. So the seven heads of the beast marry, match up with the seven hills of Rome. The book of Revelation here is portraying Rome as a system of violent oppression, founded on conquest, perpetuated by a system of slavery. What better image for Rome could you have than a massive beast that is stamping its authority all over the earth? And the way John sees it, the economic prosperity of Rome, which the statues of Roma signified and which the citizens of Rome enjoyed, had been bought at the expense of other people's oppression and poverty. Because in John's vision, the whore and the beast are intimately related. The whore is pictured riding the beast, with, I would suggest, some of the sexual connotations that that phrase brings with it. They are in bed together. They are soulmates in corruption. Corrupting economics, riding the back of militaristic power and conquest. Do you see what John's doing here? He's providing his readers with a searing political and economic critique of the mighty empire of Rome. The city of Rome, when seen from heaven's perspective, becomes Babylon, the ancient enemy of God's people. The military might and political power of Rome is depicted as a terrifying beast, destroying and oppressing all those who don't accept its ideology. The economic success of Rome is seen as a temple prostitute, corrupting those who buy into her system, and the economic success exists only because of the military might that sustains it. The prosperity of Rome is bought at the expense of others, and the corrupting influence of that prosperity is maintained and achieved by the imperial armies. But John knows not everyone can see Rome the way he can. Not everyone looks at the empire they live under and sees Babylon, or a beast, or a whore. It's very easy, isn't it, to still see Rome as Rome wants to be seen, or America as America wants to be seen, or little England as the great empire of England still wants to be seen. It's very easy for us to see our empires as pure and noble and good and righteous. And although John can see the empire as a system of tyranny, oppression, and exploitation, he's entirely aware that it was not resisted or opposed by the majority of its subjects. The way John sees it, the citizens of Rome have climbed into bed with the whore. They're enjoying their high standards of living, they're enjoying the economic prosperity of their time, and they are not seeing it as corrupt or corrupting because it's prosperity that is bought at the price of other people's oppression. 
The citizens of Rome are drinking deeply from the golden cup that the goddess Roma holds out to them from an outstretched arm on every street corner, and they don't realize, but John tells them that they're actually drinking from a poisoned chalice. The wine cup in the Whore of Babylon's hands contains abominations and human blood. Rome offers them participation in the Pax Romana, the gift of peace, security, and prosperity that the Roman Empire gave to all those who accepted her ideology. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was her gift to the world, and the world either took the gift or paid the price. Rome, the self-proclaimed eternal city, offered security to her subjects, and her own dazzling wealth seemed like a prosperity in which all her subjects could share. Revelation portrays this ideology as a deceitful illusion. Rome is simply, according to John, getting the nations of the world drunk on the wine of her success, and they're too stupefied to notice the price that that success demands. The wine of Roman rule is offered in a cup whose exterior may be golden, but which contains abominations. The goddess Roma may appear beautiful and attractive, but she is nothing more than a corrupting whore in bed with the beast of political and military oppression. So, what's John's advice to his churches? What should we do? It's a bit earthy. We get it in chapter 18, verse 4. He says to his congregations, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins. John is playing here with an image of the people of his churches climbing into bed with the whore, buying her services for their own pleasure, so much so that they're blind to the cost that their prosperity is demanding. He sees the people of his churches unthinkingly accepting the economic prosperity of Rome without giving a passing thought to those who are living in oppression and misery to maintain their high standard of living. And John says to these early Christians that they must come out, they must withdraw, they must leave the bed of the prostitute, they must resist participating in her corrupt economic systems. They are to resist participating in the political and military machine which oppresses and destroys. They are to withdraw from the economic system which corrupts and defiles. It's compelling stuff, isn't it, what John's doing here? Exposing the lies of the empire for what they are. So his congregations, which, dare I say, might include us, can learn to see the world as heaven sees it and then act accordingly. He's giving us heaven's perspective on our earthly situation so we can identify the beast of political and military oppression, spot the prostitute of economic corruption. John wants those in his congregations to act on this knowledge, to resist the beast, to come out from her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins. Then John offers a problematic image. He speaks of the destruction of the great whore. And within the symbolic world that John is constructing, this is his way of expressing divine judgment on the economic systems of Rome. As the economics of Rome collapses, which, of course, in due course it did, because no empire that is centralizing wealth to itself will last forever. It's always going to implode at some point. 
He represents that as divine judgment. What's significant in the way he tells the story, though, is the manner of her devastation. The whore of Babylon is ultimately destroyed not by direct divine action, but by a feeding frenzy of the kings of the earth who had previously been her lovers. If you read it through, the kings of the earth, they're, they're the serial lovers of the whore of Babylon, and then they're the ones that kill her. And this is very much in accord with John's overall presentation of a satanic empire such as Rome as an ultimately self-destructive entity that brings upon itself the fitting judgment for its idolatrous activities. If you make a god of empire, he is saying, you're making a god of something that is going to destroy itself. We might need to hear that. However, there is one aspect of this imagery that John employs for the Great Hall that deserves a bit more attention. Next slide, thank you, that one, great. Throughout chapter 18, John uses the image of fire to describe the burning of the great city, evoking the picture of the city being put to the torch. The city is the woman, the prostitute is the city. And he describes the burning of the great whore, the great city, in the following terms. And the ten horns that you saw, which is the ten kings of the earth, they and the beast will hate the whore, they will make her desolate and naked, they will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Chapter 17, verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This description of the stripping, rape, cannibalistic consumption and burning of the body of the great whore is deeply shocking to modern readers, and rightly so. I think it would have been deeply shocking to the original readers as well, but they weren't quite so conversant with feminist ideology as we are. It's worth our noting that John is consciously employing such powerful images to deconstruct the worldview of those living under the Roman Empire. He is dropping bombs in the minds of his congregations that they will struggle to get out. He is not seeking to describe an actual physical or sexual assault, but he is using the language of such violation as an image to describe the downfall of the idolatrous satanic empire. And I think this is deeply problematic for us in our day and age. There is a very real question here as to the effect that such imagery has on readers and also on the effect that it has had down the centuries since it was first written. I think if I could go back and have a quiet word with John, I might suggest a bit of editing. His association of the female form, vulnerable and violated, as an image for God's fitting judgment on evil in the world, has played its part in promoting negative and exploitative views of women over the last 2,000 years. Artistic representations of this scene have fed the male desire to see women dominated and abused and have lent even divine authorization to such images. And whilst this may not have been John's original intent in constructing this image, nonetheless it must be recognized that this is part of the effect which this chapter has had and continues to have. In terms of the way in which John's economic critique of empire is read in the modern world, we need to be careful. And we need to own the problems that sometimes scripture throws up for us. 
We also need to take care not to draw overly simplistic parallels between John's engagement with ancient Rome and the present-day critiques of any specific na nation or institution. I mean, I've been taking some fairly easy shots through this sermon, and they've been lining themselves up ready to be taken. But I do need to be aware, as do we all, that there have been many down through the centuries who have sought to equate John's description of the judgment of the great whore with imperial power in their own time. Did you know that the great whore has been identified as the Roman Catholic Church, Turkish Islam, Mary Queen of Scots, the Anglican Church, London, and of course, America. Nonetheless, this is not to say that the critique of empire offered by John has no relevance beyond the first century. It's just that we need to be a bit cautious in how we apply it. Richard Borkham provocatively suggests, in view of the prominence of the economic theme in Revelation 18, it is hard to avoid seeing a modern parallel in the economic relations between the so-called first and third worlds. It's easy from our cultural distance to recognize the decadence of a culture in which party guests were served with pearls dissolved in wine, thousands of pounds consumed in a few mouthfuls, but the affluent West of today has equally absurd forms of extravagant consumption. So to this end, Wes Howard Brook and Anthony Gwythus suggest the ideology of global capitalism as a contemporary expression of the economic empire about which John is so scathing. They say, next one, when empire was embodied in clearly defined entities like nation states, it was relatively easy to trace the contours of imperial power. Global capital, however, is a more elusive reality. Nonetheless, it may be startling to see how precisely the reality of global capital matches both that of the Roman Empire in particular and Revelation's wider critique of empire generally. We live in a world of contemporary market forces, globalization, multi and transnational corporations, the international trade of financial institutions. This picture, I showed it before, Judy Holcomb, Babel Revisited, the Tower of Babel picture that is so familiar to many of us, painted by Peter Bruegel the Elder, reworked as the symbols of modern capitalism. Just as in the first century, the merchants, the merchants of the contemporary world grow rich from their participation in the system of global capital. This is the shadowy elite that controls such a high percentage of the world's wealth. They have luxuries of privacy that those of us in this church don't have. Those at the center of the first world, which includes many of us, of course, benefit from generally high standards of living. But those on the margins in the third world are held in economic slavery and poverty to service the demand for luxury, convenience, and entertainment that we have at the heart of empire. I often ponder the question, Simon, how many slaves do you own? And the answer is I've got absolutely no idea, but quite a few. I've never met them. 
I don't have to be the person that chooses to beat them or not beat them. They just work for people who sell stuff to me. That is what happens in a global empire of capital. And I think Revelation unmasks that as a corrupting economic system and a violent beast. This is not to suggest that Revelation was written as a critique of first century global economics. In fact, quite the opposite. John's critique of Rome's satanic economic systems is, in the initial instance, targeted specifically within the first century. But it becomes applicable whenever a system arises in human history that perpetrates the corrupt economic ideals of ancient Rome. So John uses imagery of Babylon to convey his critique of Rome. And we might use imagery of Rome to gain a critical perspective on the empires of our own world. In this way, we might notice unsustainable levels of growth and consumption into which we are sucked, unthinking. We might echo for the 21st century, John's first century proclamation that empire is fallen. And I think we might need to hear the prophetic critique offered by one of the shadowy elite, the American billionaire financier George Soros, who says, I cannot see the global system surviving. We have entered a period of global disintegration, only we are not yet aware of it. Thus says one of the richest men on the planet. It may be that the contemporary system of global capital has already sowed the seeds of its own destruction through its oppressive, exploitative, and unsustainable levels of consumption. My last sermon on Revelation was on climate change and environmental matters. I suspect the chickens are going to come home to roost in various ways around the world. And just as within John's vision, the great whore receives her due judgment at the hands of her former lovers, so a comparable judgment is due whenever that satanic empire is revisited and reinvented within human history. We in the West drink the cup of our economic prosperity. We live in relative security under the military protection of the Pax Americana or the Pax Britannia. It's not for nothing that we continue to spend money on aircraft carriers and a nuclear deterrent. Is anybody going to be joining us protesting the arms fair at the DSEI later this year? And all the while, we enjoy our freedom to oppress those whose existence is defined by their working to perpetuate our prosperity. I think John's vision and challenge is every bit as relevant today as ever it was. And the question before us, individually and as a congregation, is can we hear that challenge and what are we going to do about it? And I'm afraid I'm going to leave the challenge hanging because there are no easy answers. We're all caught up in this. I can't just say we do this, that and the other and then we're off. I wish I could. But I can say we cannot stop asking this question. Because if we don't, people are going to keep dying. The end. Great God of the whole earth, we come before you today to bring before you the needs of this planet. And we do so trusting that you are the God of Hong Kong, the God of the West Bank, that you are the God of China, the God of South Sudan, the God of London and the God of Bloomsbury. We trust that you are God of the environment and of the climate, 
that you are the God of the marginalized and of the victim, God of the poor and the suffering, God of the well and the wealthy, God of the safe and the secure. We trust that you are God of the whole earth, and we trust that you are our God and we are your people. And so it is in trust that we, your people, cry out to you that the world is not the way the world should be. Every day we see and hear news of people diminished and distorted in their humanity. From those living in war zones and being used as weapons in fights that are not of their making, to those dropping bombs and piloting drones, to those holding civilians hostage to ideologies of hatred and desperation, to those who could negotiate peace but whose national interest is better served by war, to those enslaved in factories and sweatshops. We remember the example of Jesus who sat and ate with outsiders and sinners, who received hospitality and gave friendship across borders and boundaries. And we commit ourselves to living differently, to seeing the person behind their presentation of themselves, to finding the image of the divine in each created being. Help us to open ourselves to those who worship in different ways to us. Release us from suspicion of the other and from fear of difference. May we learn to build bridges across divisions of faith, ethnicity and origin. We pray for refugees, for those who will come to this country through West End Welcome. Help us to open our eyes to the systems of oppression that enslave humanity. Through our prayers for others, may we find within ourselves the commitment and the courage to stand against those powers and principalities of wealth and patriarchy that subjugate women, constrict men, exclude children, disadvantage the marginalized and impoverish the vulnerable. And in a world where death always seems to get the final word on life, we recommit ourselves to the one who brings life to the living and hope to the dying. And so we stand in prayer alongside those who are sick, those who are diminished through dementia, those who are living with terminal illness, those who have been recently bereaved. We pray especially for Val, and for David. We pray for our friends and for our families and for ourselves. May those who need courage be granted it. May those who seek peace discover it. May those who long for rest find it. Great God of the whole earth, may we find our purpose and completion in you. Amen. <laughs>